Would you like even more Witch Wave? Then come join us on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. Rewards also include magical merch and giveaways, early heads up about my workshops before they sell out, and all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven, where I lead monthly rituals and video chats, and where you can connect to a community of other wonderful witches. So head on over to patreon.com witchwave and sign up. It's a fabulous way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. Hello and welcome to the Witch Wave. I'm recording this on winter solstice, the longest night of the year, which means by the time this airs, the nights will be just beginning to get a little bit shorter and the sunlight is coming back to us bit by bit here in the Northern Hemisphere. Still, we have months of winter to get through, and with the pandemic escalating once more, we've got weeks of shadow and darkness to contend with, both the literal and metaphorical kinds. Our winter festivals, solstice, Yule, Hanukkah, Christmas, and so on, are about turning within and making our own light, even as the cold and the night press against our walls. And light is so precious and hopeful, and I certainly encourage you to find and generate as much of it as you possibly can. But let's not forget that there is such magic in the darkness as well. During this time of the year, we mirror nature and turn within. We refuel, recharge, and lean into gentleness. And if we choose to, we can make friends with the dark. I came across this jewel of a poem by Wendell Berry, which sums this sentiment up beautifully. He writes, quote, To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight. And find that the dark, too, blooms and sings, and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings." Unquote. I love this piece because it reminds us of the magic of nighttime and shadow and the dark season. And so my wish for you all, this Yule and beyond, is to welcome light, yes, but also to go dark, to get quiet and still and honor the beauty and wisdom and restful majesty that stir in the shadows. My guest today, Sarah Chavez, is a diva of darkness. 
She's an expert on both the history and modern practices of death rituals around the world, and she's a bottomless source of knowledge about witches, monsters, and other figures of dark folklore. And she loves this shadowy season. She even calls January the season of the witch. And so I thought she would be a perfect person to help me connect to the wonders of winter. And boy, was I right. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches! Jennifer writes, Hello, your podcast is beautiful. I just recently found you, but am flying through all the seasons all too quickly. I'm wondering how you feel about online classes, whether for tarot, witchcraft, histories, etc. I'd love to get deeper into tarot and thought an online class, especially during COVID, may be a good way to go. Is the energy different? Is there a reason not to take these types of classes online? Do you have any suggestions? Thank you so much. I appreciate you and all you do. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for your kind words and for this question. And all right, I am completely biased in this answer because I happen to teach some online workshops. But I feel like I can give you my honest assessment because I had the very same reservations about teaching these classes as you seem to about attending them. Pre-COVID, my dear friend Jonica Stuckey and I were teaching in-person workshops all about using occult techniques to generate creative writing. And these classes were absolute heaven. We'd rent some beautiful space and keep the class size really intimate, so around 14 people or so, and we'd have an altar and burn candles and do ritual, and it was just utterly magical. So you can imagine our skepticism that such a thing would translate to Zoom. But we had no other choice this year because, well, (laughs) you know. And so we decided to give it a try. And wouldn't you know it, it was incredibly magical and effective as well. And we got really great feedback on it. And so we've kept offering it and have since expanded into other workshops and rituals as well. And let me be clear, it certainly isn't the same thing as being in person, and there are definitely aspects of an in-person workshop experience that I miss and that I hope to get back to once it's safe enough to do so. But getting to connect with people all around the world and to know that they are in the comfort of their own magical spaces that they can construct for themselves is really meaningful in a different way. And I found the same thing to be true of my coven meetings that we've had to do over Zoom too, as well as family check-ins to celebrate holidays and birthdays and so on. Do I wish we could be in person? Absolutely. But the connection, the love, the magic is still there and still just as real. Now, there are certainly things you might want to ask the instructor beforehand if they haven't made it clear. One is, are they doing it classroom style where there's a lot of participation and where they encourage you to have your camera on and so forth or are they doing it webinar style which is what Jonica and I do where the only faces you see are myself and Jonica and in our case we'll occasionally patch in volunteers through just over audio so we can hear people's writing and questions and so on and 
that is definitely, I think, an important aspect to know up front. First of all, so you know whether or not you're going to have to get all dolled up <laughs> to be seen on camera, as some people like to do. Um, and certainly, I think being on camera has a different energy than being off camera. And all of it has its benefits and its shortcomings for sure. So I would just see what the structure of the class is beforehand and make sure you're comfortable with it. But other than that, my advice is if you find a class online that you are feeling called to take, give it a try. There are so many wonderful, wise teachers who are sharing their knowledge and guidance online now. And certainly you might want to try doing a one-off class for the first time, as opposed to signing up for a four-week class or a two-month class, just to make sure you're really comfortable with doing online classes. But other than that, I say just go for it. And also, I imagine many of us are going to keep up these online classes even after the pandemic is over. I know for myself, I really love getting to be able to reach more people and build a wider community and foster that creative and energetic exchange more widely. So I'm really excited about the format. It's definitely its own thing, and I can't wait to do things in person again too, but I absolutely think that it's incredibly effective and meaningful and magical if you find the right teacher, of course. Now more than ever, we really need to stay connected to each other and to whatever it is that makes us feel more vital and curious and alive and engaged. So I say absolutely go for it. And I hope that it brings you whatever wisdom and connection that you need at this moment. Now on to my guest. Sarah Chavez has dedicated her adult life to examining death and dying through an intersectional feminist and inclusive lens. She is one of the founders of the Death Positive Movement, through which she examines the relationship between ritual, decolonization, and death itself. She's the executive director of the Order of the Good Death, a founding member of the Collective for Radical Death Studies, and co-founder of the feminist site Death and the Maiden. She also weaves together the relationship between death and food, rituals, culture, and society via her blog, Nourishing Death. And she is a museum curator and co-hosts the Death in the Afternoon podcast with Caitlin Dowdy and Louise Hung. Sarah was the subject of a chapter in Caitlin Dowdy's New York Times bestselling book, From Here to Eternity, and she has worked on the popular YouTube series, Ask a Mortician. I've come to fall skull over heels in love with her writing and posts on folklore, mythology, and rituals that surround death, including her vast knowledge about witches, vampires, saints, and other beguiling beings. On this episode, we discuss her incredible and important work to destigmatize death as well as winter myths and rituals to help us all connect to the magic of this darkest season. Sarah joined me from her home in L.A. via Zoom. Sarah Chavez, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. And I'm so excited to have you here. I have had a flaming intellectual crush on you for so long. So it's wonderful to have an excuse to talk to you. Thank you so much. It is so mutual. I love you, Pam. Oh, I love you right back. 
Well, Sarah, one of the reasons that I have loved you for so long is because you have really been at the forefront of what is being called the death positive movement or the death positivity movement. And I just find the whole construct of death positivity to be so important and pretty revolutionary. So I thought by way of introduction, I would just ask you to talk a little bit about that movement and what it means. So, and I know a lot of people like bristle at the word positive, meaning that my dog just died. That's okay. Just look on this silver lining. It's going to be great. No, it is not great. Death sucks. It is horrible and painful. But like sex positivity, death positivity is basically just acknowledging that death is a normal part of life and that engaging with death basically demonstrates a natural curiosity about the human condition. Both subjects, sex and death, are Natural human experiences are integral to our lives, but we treat them like these weird taboos that we're not supposed to talk about. And there's often a lot of shame and stigmatization around discussions or curiosity about sex and death. And because these are subjects that we don't talk about a lot, there's a lot of misinformation and fear, which inevitably leads to unhealthy relationships with sexuality and mortality. So just being open and curious and educating ourselves about these taboo subjects, we can live a better life. Mm. Death is just a profound in this mysterious life event that's going to impact you and everyone. That doesn't mean it's not scary and super painful and confusing and awkward and all of those things, but that's kind of even more reason to unpack all of that and for us to talk openly about it and begin to get comfortable with it definitely informs how we want to live because our time is so limited. It can be this really valuable resource that helps us figure out the things and the people that mean the most of us because our time is limited. Absolutely. So when we talk about your involvement with this movement, what exactly does that entail? Like what projects are you working on? What kind of messages are you trying to get out in the world? And how are you delivering the good word, so to speak, about death? For the past five years now, wow, what is time? (laughs) I have worked for a nonprofit organization called the Order of the Good Death, which started in 2011. It was founded by a mortician who many of your listeners know as Caitlin Doty, the host of the Ask Mortician web series. And it was founded as a group of funerary industry professionals and academics and artists, all of these people that were exploring different ways to prepare kind of our death-phobic culture for their inevitable mortality. And this ended up growing into an international movement, the death positive movement that I helped found. The intention of the order is to educate and empower communities and individuals about the end of life. So what we do at the order is we work to protect and inform the public about their rights and choices surrounding death and the law. And we also seek to address the disparities in deaths experience within marginalized communities whose access to these choices are often limited due to systemic racism and other issues out of their control. We do this through the YouTube series that I mentioned, a podcast, articles, events, resources, and also by providing financial support for other nonprofits who are tackling head-on urgent death-related issues within their communities. And then we also advocate for and support laws and policies that are more accessible, low cost, environmentally friendly, but most importantly to me is that they ensure that each individual's end of life wishes are honored regardless of gender, racial, sexual, or cultural identity. That is so powerful. Can you talk a little bit about why some marginalized groups don't have access to the kind of death experience or death rituals or end-of-life rituals that 
white or more privileged people might have access to? Like here in the U.S., we can look at our undocumented or migrant communities. Something we've seen this year with the pandemic is so many people dying and their family, loved ones, their partners, they've had to die alone or in the presence of strangers. They haven't been surrounded by that community and their loved ones that we really think of as being integral to having a good death. But that's been the norm for many migrant and undocumented people who live here. They've had to watch their loved ones die through FaceTime or Skype. They can't travel to go to funerals. And just the expense as well, whereas many Americans are just concerned about the disposition of the body so they can select a very basic direct cremation. But for many people who are here and this is not their home, they need to look at ways to raise money and deal with the legalities and the logistics and all of the red tape that goes with getting a body home, which is a massive expense and can be a much more complicated process. So then you also have language barriers and laws and things. You know, if they don't speak English, English isn't their first language. Depending upon where they are, they can't really access or understand what those choices are or can't afford them. Mm. First of all, the work that you're describing is just so important because it has to do with the literal kind of material culture of death and the logistics of death and how to get both the dying and and the people who are the survivors to also be able to give that death ritual to the people that they love. But you're also somebody that I think of as a real expert in ritual and folklore and I was curious how you came to, first of all, your interest in death, if it was from more of the kind of like ritual and spiritual realm, or if it's very much from the practical and pragmatic realm. Both. I live in LA. I'm an LA native. My family was a film industry family. So I had that. My family's from Mexico. So I grew up, my grandmother being my main like matriarchal figure. Mm. And you can't have a conversation with my grandmother without her bringing up death. Very practical things like about her funeral. Like she has her funeral planned. She bought too many grave plots at one point. So she offers them to you. Like she's offering you a piece of candy. <laughs> it's very, very open. But my Parents and all the adult figures in my life were very, very open about everything. And I didn't get left at home with a caretaker or a babysitter. I went to work with my family, which means that I grew up on film sets my whole life. So I got to watch these very bizarre, surreal, like super choreographed Hollywood deaths being recreated over and over and over. And... There was a point in time where one of my parents was working on a set and witnessed multiple people die during filming. Wow. And kind of when everything completely changed. So the adults that I normally knew were very open. I could ask them anything. They would talk about anything. Became very closed off. And as a young child, I couldn't like wrap my head around why, but we do, you guys do this death stuff like all day long, you know, you're creating body parts and corpses and, you know, all of these things. And what's the difference? What is with the change in behavior? And, you know, really carrying that with me and trying to figure out what this whole death thing was. Mm. But it also led me to like a lot of questions as a young kid about what afterlife was and ghosts and spirits and things like that. So I asked a lot of questions about that and was exposed to like a lot of different spiritual paths and religions as a kid, especially growing up here in LA. You have so many friends that are different cultures and religions and have belief systems and you spend time with your friends and you go over sleepovers and you spend the weekend there. So you end up learning about all of these different things. 
But my dad, particularly, I spent a lot of time with him in like witchy supply stores. Mm. We lived across the street from Self-Realization Fellowship for a while. As a young kid, I was frequently taken along to hear lectures by Manly P. Hall. Oh, you didn't. Yes, that was like our Sunday church. Oh my goodness. I mean, I was like little to absorb much of anything, but like that was the environment that I grew up in. Okay, okay. I'm going to have you pause for a second because I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> okay. I'll just fire them off. First of all, what exactly were your parents doing? What was their vocation for film? My father was a costume designer. My biological mother was a publicist. So she would have specific clients that were film, television, and music legendary celebrities. But sometimes she would take on publicizing a particular movie too that came out. That's what she did. Yeah, I would get dragged along like on Saturdays and there would be cocktails, you know, be playing with dolls in the corner and we would be at Lily Tomlin's house just hanging out. Dusty Springfield was basically like my stand-in mother. What? She would come to the parent-teacher conferences as my mother she, you know, would pick me up after school. She taught me how to play guitar, which I can't play anymore. What? So I had this very, like, surreal childhood experience. Oh, my goodness, Sarah. My jaw is on the floor because that is not the answer I was expecting <laughs> from you. And I can see how the pageantry of film and the film world is very much in tension with then seeing behind the scenes, like, you know, how the proverbial sausage gets made, so to speak, and also actually knowing some of these people. I'm imagining some of these folks were better than we would have hoped, and maybe some of them were quite flawed. Is that fair to say? Isn't everyone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So talking about some of these rituals then, I mean, forgive me for going for like the most obvious question here, but when you mention your Mexican background and you mention rituals of death, of course my mind goes to Dia de los Muertos. Was that part of your upbringing? Was that something that you were taught and a day that was important to your family? Not my family. My family lived through a lot of displacement and violence. So they really did what they had to, to assimilate. Mm -hmm. You know, just one story I try to tell people so that they understand how this was to be a Mexican immigrant here. My grandmother, who's still alive, we just saw her last weekend, she had seven brothers and sisters. And when she went to school, something that the teachers made them do was write down all of the Spanish words that they knew and put them in a box, which was meant to be a coffin, and then bury it. They were not allowed to speak or do anything that was their own culture. Often they would be beaten or hit. My partner has parents had the exact same story. This is not like uncommon. This is something that like all of the elders talk about. You know, they lived through the Zoot Suit riots during this time where Dodger Stadium currently is. Before Dodger Stadium existed there, there was a community of primarily, you know, Latina people. And that's where my whole family lived. During the riots, the police would drive sailors, Navy servicemen into the area for like a week to enact violence and just terrorize the community there. So I really think that my grandparents really came away with this feeling that in order for our children and grandchildren to be successful and to just live, just for them to be able to exist and live and breathe here, we have to assimilate. We have to hide who we are. Mm -hmm. So I didn't experience that in my home, but because I lived in East LA and I had a lot of other Chicano friends, I got it at their houses. And also very close in our neighborhood too was this very well-known cultural arts center called Self-Help Graphics. 
And that's really where Dia de Muertos in the United States came to fruition. And that really began as public displays of Dia de Muertos, processions and art shows, festivals, all of those started in our neighborhood around self-help graphics. And these came about because it was a direct response to the police violence, deaths, and mistreatment of farm workers, you know, subpar schooling, and the Vietnam War as well, because it was a disproportionate number of Mexican-Americans enlisted dying much more than any of the other races. Mm. So a lot of resistance and protest came out surrounding this and something artistic, something that showed a lot of pageantry that was a form of embracing culture was deemed this form of resistance. And so people began to learn about it more and practice it more like around the neighborhood where I grew up. So that was my first exposures to it. And then since then, this is the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, every year around Dia de Muertos, I've been traveling all around Mexico during that time of year to observe and learn and do research and everything from very small rural places to larger cities to learn and record what is being practiced and how it's been handed down. Wow, Sarah, what a beautiful and eye-opening for me explanation of this. Thank you so much for that. And I mean, this is just me and my ignorance. I, of course, assumed that, oh, Mexican people come from this unbroken line of practicing certain rituals. And of course, they would import them here into America. But I mean, my family were Jewish immigrants, and they had to assimilate. And so many of those customs and rituals were lost and lost to me only to be refound again. So of course, it makes such sense that you and many people in your community would have that same experience. So thank you for that. It's so sad that what we've had to give up. And yet, one of the great things about the internet is it's really allowed people to connect and to learn more and to build community in an accelerated way. Absolutely. Sarah, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Look, it's hard enough grappling with our own emotions under ordinary circumstances, but even more so when the world is going through massive collective challenges. I am so grateful for my therapist, and even though I've done sessions in person for years, I've been pretty amazed at how effective online therapy has been for me right now. And so I can heartily recommend BetterHelp, an online counseling service which can provide you with your own licensed professional therapist to talk to via video or phone sessions. So if you have anxiety issues like I do, or are dealing with depression, stress, trauma, grief, or even just day-to-day struggles with your relationships or your family, or just feeling like you're not meeting your personal goals right now, which let's be honest, has been very difficult for most of us these days, I really encourage you to reach out to the folks at BetterHelp. They will connect you with a counselor that you can start chatting with in under 24 hours. Now, a few things I really appreciate about BetterHelp is that it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, plus they offer financial aid to those who qualify, and they make it super easy to change counselors so you can find one that you really click with. Best of all, which wave listeners, that's you, get 10% off your first month of counseling by going to betterhelp.com slash witchwave. That's better H E L P dot com slash witchwave. I believe that all human beings can benefit from therapy. I certainly have myself, and I'm so glad that it's becoming more accepted and more accessible to do so. 
So please pop over to betterhelp.com slash witchwave and find a great counselor to talk to. BetterHelp is confidential, convenient care, and you, my friend, deserve that. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Chavez. So Sarah, you just so beautifully explained your experience of resurrecting, if you will, this beautiful ritual, this beautiful holiday. And I find that very, very relevant because one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you now is because we are in the middle of this shadowy season. You know, the dark days are growing longer as I record this with you. This will have come out just a couple days after the winter solstice. So we are in the thick of the shadowy season. And so much of the holidays and rituals that we have in the witchcraft community certainly are around these themes of death and resurrection and those cycles of life. You wrote a post for our mutual, I'm going to call her a friend, even though I've never met her in person. I love her so much. This is a woman named S. Elizabeth, and she has a blog called Unquiet Things. She also has a wonderful book out called Art of the Occult, which is gorgeous. Just given a quick plug for her. But you wrote this post that is all about why you love this season. And we are in the thick of the pandemic. We're in the thick of it getting colder here where I live on the East Coast. I am looking for joy right now, my friend. So... <laughs> I wanted to invite you to talk about some of the reasons that you actually love this season and just thought I'd ask you to riff a little bit on why you think of this whole season as the season of the witch. I do, and I actually call it the other Halloween. Yuletide is the other Halloween. It's like Halloween and Samhain on steroids. <laughs> yeah, during this time of darkness, one year is ending, another year is beginning. People for centuries all around the world have practiced these different rituals to honor and appease both the dead and monsters. So many of our holiday traditions are really rooted in magic, the supernatural. Now we unfortunately Think of it as connected too much to commercialism. But there's so much deep, wonderful magic there. You know, if you think about it, we still practice these things. We leave offerings of food on our tables and doorsteps for otherworldly beings. Mm. There are many cultures that eat beans at the New Year for good luck. Beans were once believed to be vessels that held the souls of the dead. We make noise, bang pots and pans and yell and cheer, set off fireworks, sometimes gunshots at midnight on New Year's Eve. And we do this, even though we may have forgotten why we do this, we do it to scare away unwanted spirits, negative energies who want to do us harm or bring misfortune to us in the new year. Yeah, similar to Halloween or Samhain. We know that it's believed that that veil between the living and the dead is at its thinnest. And like this threshold between the old and the new allows the dead, along with demons and spirits and witches, open passage between our worlds. And before we had the costumes and the trick-or-treating, early Halloween celebrations really centered on rituals and games of prognostication. Rituals that were essentially casting spells in order to tell the future because it was considered an ideal time to do this because spirits of the dead and your ancestors were nearby to help you answer your questions. The risk was is that you might find something out about your own death or the death of others. And there are many, many like superstitions about death and Christmas and New Year's Eve at this time. But as I mentioned, many countries and cultures leave food and gifts out for the dead. One example that I can think of that I really love is in Finland. It's believed that the dead return to visit during Christmas, very much like Vida Muertos. 
People visit the cemetery, they pay their respects, and they leave lighted candles. If you can look up photos of this, listeners, the cemeteries with the snow and the candlelight and the darkness are absolutely beautiful. Oh, I have chills just thinking about it, Sarah. So in some places, the saunas will close early so the dead can enjoy their time there. And some families will set out a meal for their deceased loved ones, and they'll even leave a bed empty for them on Christmas night. For the Yuletide monsters, which are my favorite part, (laughs) they exist to ask us to reflect on and take responsibility for our behavior towards others and our community and the earth or nature. If you're lucky, some of the monsters might give you a gift to help you do better in the next year, but most enact these terrifying punishments for actions that kind of neglect or cause harm to community and to the earth. But these really serve as this important reminder that our well-being and prosperity is tied to the land, it's tied to others, and that our continuous care and reverence for our fellow humans and nature is really necessary. So just a couple favorites, Mari Lloyd, who some people may know, she's a skeleton horse who visits on New Year's Eve, and she's accompanied by costumed revelers who are supposed to represent the dead. And the dead have risen from their graves to remind us the living of their constant presence. So they go from house to house, kind of like we do trick-or-treating, and they challenge people to a battle of rhymes. Did you say a battle of rhymes? As in, yes, like, like, as is this like a rap, rap battle? battle? Yes. <laughs> we all want a Welsh Christmas now. Amazing. Skeleton horses and rap battles. Absolutely. It's great. And another one is the Tomten or Tomte. I'm not sure what the plural is for that. But it's this figure in Scandinavian folklore that looks like a gnome, and they live inside burial mounds. And throughout the year, they act as caretakers and protectors of the household and all the people that live in the house and their animals. And so in some place, they are the ones that bring the gifts on Christmas night. But if you make them mad or you neglect them by not caring for your family, not caring properly for your land or your animals, they get pretty pissed off. And they can play these really terrible tricks that often lead to death on you. And then, of course, there's our favorite, the witches. Yes! I particularly call January the season of the witch because the witches... They're everywhere. In many parts of Europe, witches are a really common and popular figure of the holiday season. And prior to the Christian church kind of taking over January 6th as Epiphany or Three Kings Night, this was the holy night of Berkta, who was the goddess of winter, witchcraft, and animals. And it was also believed that she may have served as a cycle, which is kind of a figure who cares for and escorts the dead to the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So through the years, many, many countries have adapted Berkta to their own cultures. And so she goes by many different names and personas. I guess the most benevolent one is Italy's La Befana. Yes, I love her. I have her on our Christmas tree, a little Befana ornament. She's so lovely. Oh, you have to post a picture of her. I will. So she embodies the crone archetypes. She arrives on Epiphany and she gives gifts of cookies and sweets to children. But on the other side of the spectrum is Perkta. And she's often seen flying the skies with this throng of demonic looking helpers who are believed to be the lost souls of the dead or in some places they think that they're the souls of unbaptized children who just haven't crossed over into the afterlife. They love to partake of the feast offerings that are left out for them by people hoping for Perkta's blessing of wealth and health in the new year, which brings me to one of my favorite bits, if not the favorite bit of Christmas food folklore, is that the traditional centerpiece of a Christmas dinner used to be a goose. Maybe if you like listen to some of the old timey like Charles Dickens stories, 
they're always talking about the Christmas goose. Sure. People used to leave fat from their Christmas goose in a pot outside as an offering to witches so they could use it to make flying ointment. Wow, Sarah, because I've always known the terrible superstition, and I use that word terrible kind of with a wicked gleam in my eye, (laughs) of witches using baby parts as the main kind of fat for the unguent or the, you know, the flying ointment. But I hadn't heard of goose fat. And honestly, that makes more sense because they have wings. Exactly. And another thing is that in some places, Perked is depicted as having goose feet. I don't know how she gets around, but sometimes she has goose feet. So that somehow makes some weird amount of sense. Yes. And you're also reminding me when I was researching older witch figures that Mother Goose is supposed to be like a newer iteration of some of these deities that you're talking about too. And that's why she's often shown sitting on a goose, flying through the air, and she often has a pointy witch's hat. There's a Mother Goose sculpture in Central Park. She looks like a witch. It's a pretty cool piece of art. I really like her. And ever since I've started thinking of her as like the New York City witch, I've become a bit more fond of her, I must say. Oh my gosh. I love that. The New York City witch. (laughs) Fabulous. But yes, Mother Goose is actually, again, another kind of incarnation of Perkta and Burkta that it's all kind of connected. So awesome. Oh, well, I mean, I could talk to you about this for like seven more episodes, but we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. I am obsessed with Zoo's incense, which is why I am so excited to announce that I have partnered with them on an exclusive Witch Wave incense blend just for you. The Witch Wave blend is inspired by Artemis, goddess of the moon, the hunt, the wild. It contains sandalwood, orris root, myrrh, black storax, mugwort, ambrette seed tincture, and organic ylang-ylang essential oil. And I cannot tell you how fun and magical it was to collaborate with the folks from zoos and come up with this blend for you. You can order your Witch Wave Incense Blend by going to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop, and you'll see it there. And this is a small batch, limited edition, so we'll see how long it lasts. I also want to encourage you to go to Zeus's site and order their incense from them directly because they are so incredible. They have nine incense blends currently available, and they are handmade and hand-rolled, all natural, and all of their ingredients are organic or wild-crafted and made with whole plants, seeds, roots, woods, tree resins, and tinctures. Zoos also offers hand cast, concrete burners, charcoal, raw aromatics like frankincense and myrrh, and incense supplies. Check it all out at zoosincense.com. And if you use promo code WITCHWAVE, you'll get 10% off. So that's right. You've got two places to go. One is witchwavepodcast.com slash shop to get our exclusive Artemis-inspired Witchwave incense blend. And you can get everything else over at zoosincense.com. That's Z-O-U-Z incense.com. And use offer code witchwave for 10% off everything else. Thank you, Zoos. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Chavez. Uh, Sarah, I'm just swooning listening to you talk all about different folklore and mythology for this time of year. I'd love to shift a little bit and talk about the practice of, 
of course, I'm going to use the word witchcraft, but truly any ritual that people might want to embody or practice for this time of year. And since rituals are really an area of your expertise, I'd love to hear about some that are your favorites or that you might recommend for people who are looking for some kind of magical activity. Yeah, it's hard to find magical activity this year. Like thinking about the end of this year and how horrible it has been. Like I just feel dread. And then I start thinking about ritual and then feeling much better and coming up with a plan. So this is kind of what I was thinking of doing this year. But something that I've been doing for the past several years on New Year's Eve is I make a funeral feast because it's the ending of the year. It's a transformative time. So it's really ideal to honor and make space and lay to rest all of the stuff that I need to. So I make dishes and use ingredients that are tied to death and funerary rituals. And this year, one of the things that I was planning on doing is inspired by a Mexica Aztec goddess who I talk about a lot. I will probably completely mispronounce her name, La Solfeo, who is the goddess of decomposition and fertilization. But basically her name translates to the eater of filth. Yes, Sarah, I know about her. I only learned about her myself a couple years ago and I was like she is the raddest so please talk about her and I will not even attempt to pronounce her name she is amazing and I think she is so perfect for this year in particular what she does is she takes everything that is rotten and decaying and harmful and she transforms it into something that's vibrant and restorative and life-giving And sometimes, like a witch, she is depicted with a broom or riding a broom, which I just found out about, like, the past few months. Fuck yes, Sarah. See, it all comes back to the witches. Everything does. So maybe a lot of people already know in Latino homes like mine, the holidays are also tamale season. Like, we make and eat all the tamales. So in some places, bean tamales are made and the beans are representative of that excrement, which are consumed in the acknowledgement that in order to become better, to transform, like la soltero, we also got to eat shit in order to transform, to resurrect ourselves or to experience a rebirth. We're constantly experiencing loss and grief and change. And death doesn't just occur kind of in a literal definition of when a life ends, but kind of like the death card has to do with endings so they can be healthy and move us toward a path of prosperity and wellness and abundance. So all great things that we want, but in our lives when we experience death or ending of relationships and jobs, home, an era of our own life or like our ways of life, again, thanks 2020 for magnifying this. Mm-hmm. I think for the most part that like grief stemming from actual death, we really bury these losses. People lose a job or they break up with someone or they have to move. They're told to like move on or just move past it or like get over it. These things are all really dismissive and unhelpful. So what I'm trying to do this year is really looking at ways to process all of that loss and grief in a way that will really serve me, hopefully serve others. All that unresolved grief and loss that stems from the end of something, if we don't deal with it, and now is a great time to deal with it, then it ends up manifesting as illness roadblocks, or in us becoming our own roadblock, which is like the story of me right there. Mm -hmm. That's my story. I am constantly getting in my way. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. I know I sometimes certainly can. Now, when you're talking about doing a ritual for this goddess or with her, because I know, and I tell my listeners all the time, 
that people can feel liberated to create their own rituals and do what resonates for them. And no matter how many times I say it, people are like, yes, but can you also help me know a couple little steps or suggestions? So in addition to making maybe tamales or eating beans, is there anything else that you might recommend that people do to interface or honor the goddess of filth? Absolutely. Practical examples are so, so helpful and necessary. I'm going to recreate my altar, which is normally kind of a small private space, but this year it got moved to the living room and now occupies a very large space just because I felt I needed it, we needed it. But I was going to use poinsettia flowers. They originated in Mexico. They were a sacred flower used in rituals and festivals. I had no idea, Sarah. Yes. And again, watch me mispronounce another name. Ketla Shoshi is what they were called. But their name translates to flower that withers, mortal flower that perishes like all that is pure. So some good alternatives for folks who may not be of Mexican or Latina descent. And I'll also add, sorry, Sarah, that I think those flowers are probably not good for familiars. I believe I remember reading that like maybe some cats and dogs shouldn't be munching on them. That is very true, which was a consideration that I had because I have a little little dog who is into everything. So put them up high, make sure that when petals fall, they fall on a surface that will catch them out of cats. And what, is anything out of cats reach? Probably not. Oh, woman, we have two new kittens. Nothing is out of their reach. Nothing. So poinsettias are not for your home. That's fine. We can talk about other things. But most people don't have two new kittens at home. So I am not getting in the way of this plan. So a couple of good alternatives might be rosemary. Since it was historically used for remembrance and grief and mourning, parsley, which I actually nicknamed the herb of death, was dedicated to Persephone by ancient Greeks and Romans. It was used in funerary rituals, it was placed over graves, and mourners would wear crowns made of parsley. Mm. So I can definitely see people making these really lovely crowns with flowers and other herbs and greenery that are meaningful to them and whatever is accessible to them. Lily flowers are also tied to death and mourning in many, many different cultures. I know Mayan lore, there's a god whose name I'm not going to mispronounce today, but that translates to the water lily monster. But priests would drink water lily water before rituals in which they communicated with the dead. And then a similar water with leaves and other flowers like Sempasuchil, which a lot of people will recognize that's the orange marigold flower that sure. we use in Vida Muertos rituals. Its scent attracts and guides the dead. Burial shrouds would be soaked in this water to scent it before the dead, their bodies were prepared and buried. Another thing that people could do besides cooking a meal, offering food, creating an altar, is play music, play a song, read a poem, write a letter, draw something, meditate of course, but whatever rituals they want to do is really imbue them with the things that are meaningful to them. A lot of people will want to do something with friends and family or those that they practice with. So some ideas might be doing a guided meditation on mortality and loss. And this should be over Zoom this year or masked at a distance outside. <laughs> exactly, exactly writing a letter to someone you've lost or writing a letter to the things that you're grieving this year or that you lost. Like so many opportunities or things that I had set up for this year, just gone, just mm -hmm. not like gone. Then close with a reading and a vigil for people in your community who died as well. There's been so much actual death this year as a result of COVID 
as a result of racism, sexism, capitalism, you know, having a moment that's a vigil to recognize and create a space to honor these spirits and souls as well. And then really setting an intention that carries these threads throughout the rest of the year by recognizing and really actively finding ways that you can work and be involved in dismantling these underlying systems that cause and contribute to these unnecessary or untimely deaths. Yes, Sarah. Oh, I have chills and I just, you are speaking my language, my friend. We talk a lot on the podcast about making our magic not just spiritual, but also embodied. And, you know, how can we not only do a ritual, but also then take an action to manifest a better, more compassionate, more loving, just world. So thank you so much for those powerful words. I really appreciate that reminder. And finally, I often think about this time of year as a time to honor the dead, certainly, and honor the shadow, but also to welcome the light. And I think about how the solstice is the darkest time of the year, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere. And there are so many holidays that are rituals of light that happen around this time, you know, whether it's Hanukkah or Yule or Diwali. There's certainly many, many myths of deities that die and then are resurrected. And I mean, I'm not Christian, but I think it's interesting that we don't know what Jesus's birthday actually was. <laughs> and yet, you know, the powers that be decided to celebrate this baby that's supposed to symbolize love, right, as happening around the winter solstice and so on. But of course, I'm also thinking about Persephone and Inanna and Osiris, all of these stories of people who go into the underground, into the darkness, but then are reborn. So in closing, I wondered, Sarah, if you can think of any rituals around light that helps to welcome a new beginning as well for the new year. So I haven't done this for years and I used to do it in community, in person. That's not possible this year. Now that we're having this conversation, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to just create this for myself this year. Something that we would do is gather discarded Christmas tree branches or whatever greenery is around, which in a city that might not be the easiest. You can use stones or rocks, seashells, whatever is accessible to you and create a spiral, a spiral that's large enough for you to walk in. And in the middle of the spiral, you light a candle. And as you're walking, as you're circling, you're circling inwards toward the darkness, toward the deepest part of the spiral and really embracing that darkness really embracing the shadows and really thinking about the things that you want to carry with you from the year. So as you reach the center of the spiral, lighting your own candle that you've carried and then walking out of the spiral, and you can have candles along the way as well. Your, your kittens would love this, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then lighting candles along your way as you're going out of the spiral away from the darkness and you're lighting your way. If you can do this, set it up in a living room or a space, put the kitten somewhere. If you're lucky enough to have an outdoor space or even a little porch to do something like that, you could do a tabletop version of this too, I think. That's something that is so beautiful and meaningful. I think I'm going to actually do that again this year. I haven't done it for years and I don't know why. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I'm going to do that this year too. I will just put the kittens in a room. I will close the door. They're fine. <laughs> They'll entertain each other. And I will do that spiral into the dark and then back out again into the light. 
And truly, that is what I wish for you in the coming year, Sarah. That is what I wish for all of our listeners. And I'm just so grateful that you were here. Before you go, I know people are going to want to learn more about all of the incredible projects that you're involved with and all the work that you do. So how can people find out more about you? You can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter mostly and Instagram as well. I probably post more interesting like witchy stuff, magic stuff, things that are a little more personal to me on Instagram. My handles are the same. So it's at Sarah with an H underscore Calavera, C-A-L-A-V-E-R-A. Find me, follow me there. Let's be friends. I need friends. It's such a lonely time. I'm so sad. Come be my friend. Well, I want to be your friend. May this be the start of our new friendship, please. I would love that. That would be wonderful. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. I am truly honored to share space with you. And I wish you and I wish you a bright new year ahead. Thank you so, so much. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Sarah Chavez for sharing her divine darkness and bright light with me. And we'll be taking a short winter break, returning on January 13th. So I'm wishing you the happiest holidays and the most magical new year in the meantime. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop us an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is produced, written, and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs, thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman, Lara Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com, and you can now buy Witchwave merch there as well. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really, truly does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. Please consider picking up my book, Waking the Witch, which is available everywhere now. And if you want more WitchWave or you would just like to support the show, please join us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash Witch Wave. Thank you so much for listening, and here's to a much better and brighter 2021. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.